0: You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Psalm chapter 23. We're doing a summer in the Psalms, and uh, just uh, not in any particular order, just looking at some of them and... uh, Gleaning what maybe the Holy Spirit uh, would encourage us in or strengthen us in, now just because we're hopping around in the Psalms and not necessarily uh, doing Psalm one and Psalm two and Psalm three or three or something like that, doesn't mean that the Psalms does not have order. Um, sometimes when we read the Psalms, because you know Psalms are so um, they're so apt for what I call uh, coffee cup theology, right? Like the things that fit on a coffee cup. That's one line. Uh, we had a joke this morning at around bre- breakfast table, of uh, you know, I was, we weren't sure how many people were going to show up. And I said, "Well, if it's nobody there, then I'll just have a, a holy nap." And everybody kind of looked at me funny. I said, "Well, the psalmist writes, you know, that the Lord gives sleep to the righteous, right? You know, uh, and it, I actually reread it. And it says actually that uh, He gives sleep to His beloved, uh, and you know, that makes that's a good coffee mug right there, you know. Uh, and so we can pick, nitpick the the, the psalms so much." that we lose the fact that there actually is a big picture to the the whole psalm. So I want to take a moment. I was just reminded of a resource um, that I really like, a thing called the Bible Project uh, that does a... um, uh, Every book of the Bible, they have kind of these hand-drawn cartoon thing where they explain the structure and the the narrative and the big ideas and things like that. It's very helpful just to get kind of that... 30,000 foot view, you know, satellite image of the of the book to realize oh there is a structure to it. So when you dive into the sections of it that you know that there is something bigger rather than a piece to part um, thing. So let me see if I can pull this up. It's always a a gamble when I try to you get technology to cooperate with me. The book of
1: Psalms. It's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, Some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple. But the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the Book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the Book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word Hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command, to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book, so it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading, Book 1, Book 2, Book 3, 4, and 5 at various points. And that these divide the book into five large sections. Now the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and Amen. So the book has the conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts, and so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of Book 1, because most of the poems in Book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The Book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the Messianic King will be blessed. Precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so, together, these two poems tell us that the Book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future Messianic Kingdom. Now, with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So, for example, Book 1 has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes. Was a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalms 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And the right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the Temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic Kingdom. Then, book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic King over all of the nation. This poem is really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the Messianic Kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book 3 also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book 4 is designed to respond to this crisis of exile, so the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses, and he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of Book 4 is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book 5 opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the The cries of his people, and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then. Right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combined all together here in Book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here is a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally, too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems. And it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound. It tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about.
0: So you can see there is a lot of structure uh, that is there in the midst of it. Um, And I think it's one of those things that's uh, very important for us to remember. Uh, that Scripture has structure. It's not just a random collection of stuff that got thrown together because it seemed like it was there. The Holy Spirit uh, imbued into it the reality of uh, understanding for us. And so we can drill down into moments and glean out incredible things, but we can also stand back in awe and wonder of it. Uh, It's one thing to go to the Grand Canyon and be in awe of the pebble that's on the stone. It's another thing to stand back and look at the magnitude of the whole and be in awe and wonder of the reality reality of it. Psalm 23 is definitely one of those little stones that is worth picking up and looking at though. Uh, it is probably the most familiar of all uh, psalms, and uh, so much so that it becomes a bit of a challenge to us. We oftentimes talk about the challenge of familiarity uh, with scriptural texts, ones that we've just heard so many times, or uh, you know, show up at funerals or show up on uh, in you know normal stories. You know, we talk about David and Goliath or Noah uh, and the Ark, uh, or even sometimes for people that only go to church on Christmas and Easter, those those stories of Christmas and Easter just become so familiar that we lose the and the wonder and the reality of them. Psalm 23 can be one of those. It is known as the Shepherd's Psalm, oftentimes used in a time of trial when comfort is needed, oftentimes uh, in funeral services uh, or at hospice uh, type of scenarios. And it simply reads like this The Lord is my You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, often, as I said, oftentimes referred to as the shepherd's psalm, is a juxtaposition of the reality of who God is and the reality of what God does and how He interacts with us, who we are, and what we do. If you ever struggle to read Scripture and understand it, to be able to read Scripture and glean truth from it, there are four functional questions that you can ask of any passage of Scripture that you come to and glean what it is that God has to say out of it uh, in a way that is true and right that you will not uh, imbue onto it what you think it ought to say, but glean from it what it actually says. And the four questions are simply this. From the text who is God and what has God done therefore who am I and what am I to do those two questions of who am I and what am I to do is often what we jump to when it comes to reading scripture and studying we want to uh, we want to be comforted we want to gain knowledge we want to hear from God, And so we always jump to the application side of Scripture. What am I supposed to do? What is this supposed to tell me? How am I supposed to live because of that? But if we don't start from the framework of all of Scripture is declaring to us the reality of who God is and what God does, if we don't start from that place, then all of our application will be idol-based. It will be based on what we think and what we feel and what we want and what we want to get out of the situation. And so we're going to start from that perspective. Who is God? Line 1 or verse 1 tells us uh, the, the oddity that is our God. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, depending on what translation you have, uh, the word Lord is probably translated in all caps. This is not them shouting at you as though you're on social media. This is the English translation of the way that, we try, that they try to indicate the proper name of God, Yahweh. Uh, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And they translate it as Lord, but all caps Lord. Uh, to indicate that that is His formal name. This is the formal name of God when Moses is at the burning bush and He says, Cool, who shall I say has sent Me? And the Lord says, Tell them that I am who I am has sent Me. This is the name that Jesus uses when He describes Himself and He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It is the reality of all that is God inside of time, outside of time, before, after, uh, all-powerful I am. Outside of your reality, I am God. It is the fullness and magnitude that is our our splendid God that we cannot fully comprehend. If God is infinite, there will always be something more for us to know of God for all of eternity. There will come a day when we will see God Uh, not like uh, through a a foggy mirror, but we will see Him face to face. But even in that moment, we will never fully know Him because of His infinite nature. He is outside of our even comprehension into eternity. And we have that juxtaposition of the Lord is my shepherd. The picture of... uh, Agrarian society, we oftentimes think of the shepherd in terms of, you know, they're the boss of the sheep. They're the one that takes care of them. But it is a functional servant. The shepherds were considered to be very oftentimes unclean, not because they weren't an important part of society, but because they couldn't follow the standard rituals of Jewish culture to remain ceremonially clean. They had to live and sleep out in the field. It was it was not the the high order of that. In fact, you know, we oftentimes talk about you know Abraham having flocks and stuff like that. Abraham wasn't a shepherd. He had people that did shepherding for him. He didn't go out and sleep in the field. It wasn't David's older brothers that were in the the, the best position that did it. It was David that got shoved out in the field, right? This is one of the reasons why in the story of Joseph, his brothers hated him so much because he got to live at home with daddy and get the nice clothes while they had to go sleep out in the field with sheep. right? the position of the shepherd was not high and lofty. It was a place of very humble means and humble situation. And here we have, at the beginning of verse 1, this juxtaposition of a a God that is more glorious, more powerful, more awe-inspiring than we can possibly comprehend being linked as a shepherd of His people. And not just a shepherd of His people, in general, but he says the Lord is my shepherd. This holds the same weight, uh, holds the same sense of awe and wonder of Jesus when He's with His disciples and they ask Him, Teacher, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who's in heaven. It seemed to be such a Uh, uh, a crazy thing something that we couldn't comprehend and yet this is how God reveals Himself to be in Scripture that He is all awe inspiring all powerful and and incredibly uh, glorious and simultaneously serving us. In fact, the image that Psalm 23 gives us, we call it the, the, the shepherd psalm, but really there's actually two pictures of God that is painted there simultaneously that both hold the same weight. There is Jesus as or there's God as shepherd, and there is God as host. You read there uh, in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is the picture of somebody hosting people into their home and taking on the role of serving them as they come in to be hosted in their house. This is the tension that exists in the reality of God's gloriousness and His servant nature. That God is not a God that simply sits upon an altar and begs for us to uh, adore and worship and bring homage and everything else as though He has no connection to us. Oftentimes we think of him as the king of the universe and those kind of things, uh, and the you know the best perspective of it is we have is you know something like the president of the United States or the speaker of the House or something like that. And if you rush up to them to try to get them to give you something, you will either be shot or at best maybe immediately tackled. Right? There is no connection that you get to have with those kind of individuals. And yet the God of the universe not only invites you in, but He gets down and serves. In an incredible way. This is who God is. And he says this in a unique way. He says, That the Lord is my shepherd, and all that he does here, he says, he does for his name's sake. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. And it's a unique position that God has in the world that God can only pursue his glory in fact he says in isaiah that he says i give my glory to no other now if we see somebody and they're living for their glory we say man that seems kind of crazy right that isn't like that's that's you know self promotion is not something that's put forward but God is a god That if He were to give His glory to anybody else, it would be idolatry and He would cease to be God. So God holds a position that is uh, different from every other anything in all of creation. And everything that He does is for His name's sake. This is who God is. It stems from His character. Everything that God says, everything that God gives, every command that comes from the mouth of God, everything that He is about, Is about His glory, His namesake, His uh, character and His nature. That's who God is. And what is it that God does? That's the second question, right? Well, He says here, He makes. He leads. He restores. He guides. God is active in our life. And this is why this psalm is so comforting to us is that when we read the passage that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, He is active. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. The shepherd is active in his role. Uh, This is the distinction between the person that owns the field and the shepherd working in the field. The one that owns the field, whatever happens in it, whatever grows in there, that's just it. Just does what it does. But the shepherd is one that is stepping in and actively engaging in what takes place, making sure that these sheep. You know, it's often been said that it is a it's an incredible thing that God is our shepherd, and it is not a flattering thing that God called us sheep, because sheep are not intelligent. It is very often that sheep. Will eat things that will kill them. They'll gorge themselves on certain plants and things like that that literally give them enough gas that their stomach will rupture, or things that are poisonous and and are not good. You know, oftentimes we give animals a lot more credit than they're due, uh, thinking that oh yeah you know um, we know that you don't eat the leaves off of rhubarb because they have what is it arsenic in it or something? There's something that's in it that's like gonna kill you, right? And so we think, you know, moose that are walking through the trees, you know, they look at a leaf and they know what's good and not. And apparently, that's not true when it comes to rhubarb leaves with moose, because they're going to eat them. Right? There's nothing shepherding them in that. And and he describes there that he makes the sheep to lie down in green pastures where there is good food that is there. He leads them beside quiet waters and restores their pull and guides them in the path that they ought to go. God is active. And this is both comforting to us and sometimes frustrating for us. Because there's very often times in our lives, if we're honest, it's one of the reasons why there are so many psalms of lament. When we go, God, where are You? Where are You in the midst of this? This is so hard. This is so challenging. And I think that's why he concludes in verse 4 of saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. One of the great realities for us of what God does is knowing that God knows what our end is. To have faith in in God our Father is to know that He knows our beginning, He knows our end, and He knows every step in the the midst of it. And if, if we believe that that's true, then we can trust Him in the midst of that. We can rest in Him. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. And in His house is made ready for us to dwell. This is the act of God and this is what God does. So who am I in light of who God is? Not just starting from that point, but in light of who God is, who am I? The way that this Psalm one begin, or Psalm uh, twenty three verse one begins, is kind of hard to translate, as oftentimes is sometimes um, Hebrew. They they may not necessarily have a word; they may add a an ending to a word that then uh, you are to try to associate with. Which verb does it go with, and those kind of things? Uh, You can translate this as since the Lord. Is my shepherd, stating a, uh, a fact of reality that since the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You can also translate this in such a way as to say the reality of uh, him becoming my shepherd, that there's this act that there's a transformation that takes place, that at one point in time he was not my shepherd. And oftentimes we think of God in terms of this reality that God is—you know—we're all God's children. We're all in this thing. It's just how the way that this works. But this verse is wanting to tell us that there is something transformative that has happened in the reality that He is our Shepherd. That there was a time when we were not in His flock, we were not His sheep, we were not part of His uh, of His pasture. But since the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. To see who God is and the reality of that changes everything about us. Because when we see His goodness, when we see His faithfulness, it then shows us the reality of our own brokenness, our own, the, the things that are messed up about us. And so as we realize that reality and we realize that God has chose us in Christ to be His sheep, to be brought from death to life and to be brought into this reality, that then changes who I am. That I'm not just some sheep of God's. I'm His sheep. He knows me. He knows my struggles. He knows my heartaches. He knows my challenges. And in that reality, I can rest knowing I won't have to want. Now this has been blown out of context, obviously, as many other passages have in the sense that... See, this is one of those that just says, if you follow the Lord, you'll get everything you want. And we wouldn't have most of the New Testament if that was the case, right? Right? I mean, if, if really uh, us getting all of God was about having enough faith or the right kind of faith, then like none of the apostles had much faith, right? Because they mostly all died horrible deaths broke. No, this is not what this is talking about. This is saying the reality of what it is that I actually need, I shall not be in want. And as I go through this Reality. it's not for my name's sake, but for His name's sake. So who I am changes from the character of Chris Kopp to the character of God in my reflection of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because You are with me. Both Your instrument of correction and Your instrument of defense are for me. Your discipline and your judgment are for my benefit. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And one of the greatest things about this, in who I am, because of who God is, is that Christian friend, you and I will only ever walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's only a shadow for us. For the rest of the world, it is true and utter darkness. But for us, it's only a shadow. That's the worst that the world can throw at us. For the believer, this world is as close to hell as we will ever come. And for the unbeliever, and this is a a horrible feeling, a horrible thought, that this world is as close to heaven as they'll ever come. The valley of the shadow of death for us is not a place for us to fear evil. Because the Lord is with us. Not because we're strong enough. Not because we're smart enough. Not because we're educated enough or we've got enough of the idea. God is leading us through this and we can rest in Him. And how do we know that? Because the very next thing that He says is, You prepare a table before Me in the presence of My enemies. Now we don't exactly know what the what the picture of this feast is looking like that he's describing here. It's one of two things. It's either social enemies, those that just don't like us, and they see God preparing a table before you in their presence, realizing that they can't do anything about it, and and there's just this reality of he's with God. He's with this this shepherd. He's with the host. There's that part of it. The other part of it could be actually a picture of these are captives of a conflict and war. But either way, the joy of this is that who am I in light of who God is? I'm a victor, I get to win. Which is an incredible reality because so much of our life we feel like we lose. We lose conversations. We lose friendships. We lose trust. We lose sleep. We lose tears. And in the midst of all of those, we feel like God, am I ever going to win? And His promise for us is that He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Who am I in light of who God is? I'm a victor, I win. So, what am I to do? That's the end question, right? We know who God is and what God's done and who we are in light of those things. What am I to do? And I think this is why he ends verse 6 this way. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian living is actually really simple in the sense that it's just us living in relationship with our God through the sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that changes us from death to life, that purges us, that is the thing that makes the Lord our shepherd, that makes Jesus our shepherd. It's not our choosing of Him, but His choosing of us, His death on our behalf that does that. And so in the midst of that, it's not us trying harder. It's us living in light of the reality that His goodness, His loving kindness follow us all the days of our life. And as we live, we just live in that reality. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Now we picture that in terms of eternity, like the house in glory. But don't forget that the reality of our salvation begins now. We walk with the Lord now. He's our shepherd now. He leads us to green pastures, to the places that we need for nourishment. He leads us to those places of rest. He restores our soul. He guides us for His name's sake. All of these things are true now. And if they're not true now, they're not true ever. So let's live like we believe that the Lord is our shepherd. Roger Huntington, who runs the Bible camp upriver, preached this uh, text a number of years back, and he made the point of saying, you know, when we live in a context where you know we we ain't got no sheep around here, right? And it's been it's been a few years since anybody's had a reindeer herd running around in this region. So he used to say, he says, I don't know nothing about sheep, but I know stuff about dogs. So let me tell you about the good musher. And the reality of this, is that if we can conceive of somebody who's uh, in this life, their life depends on these uh, dogs, and they want to take care of them, if we can picture that, and infinitely expound that up to say, this is how God loves us. This is how God cares for us. This is how God nurtures us. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is, by His grace, your shepherd. And so as we think about this simple psalm, something that we're so familiar with, probably the next funeral you attend, this will be a psalm that will be read at it. I think there's two things that are important for us to realize. The psalm is not true for everyone. Because the Lord is not, by default, everyone's shepherd. And then the second thing is... If the Lord is your shepherd, since the Lord is your shepherd, you don't have to be in want. He's going to make you lie down in green pastures. He's going to lead you beside quiet waters. He will restore your soul. He will guide you in paths of righteousness because His name matters. And even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear because He is with you and His rod and His staff, they're a comfort to you. He has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies and He's anointed your head with oil and your cup overflows with His goodness and loving kindness that follows you all the days of your life. Because of this, all of these things, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is such a sad thing that this psalm is not true for everyone. But we can tell them about the shepherd that loves them. The shepherd that came to earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, sacrificed his life for his sheep, and then calls out in his voice and he says, My sheep know my voice. And they come. And they won't listen to another. So let us be those that God uses to tell people of this Good Shepherd. To use the reality that we rest in Him for His good purposes so that they can see the splendor of this Lord. Awe-inspiring, glory-bound, incredible God who shepherds us with loving kindness. Let's pray. God, thank You again so much for Your Word. Thank You that it is true and right and real. Thank You for this one psalm that is so familiar. And I pray, God, that this morning You would cause it to strike our soul afresh. Shake it loose from the, oh yeah, we know that. But this morning, God, help us to rest in the reality that You are my shepherd. You, the God that set Saturn down in its place in the universe are my shepherd and you know my name and you know my struggles and you know my heartaches and that is the same for every person that is in this room so lord help us to live and light that good news we love you in your name we pray amen thank you for joining us we hope you've been blessed by the hearing of god's word feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com